Just like there's too much junk on Earth, we're sending up too much junk into space now too. As private enterprise gains more access to space, even more satellites are launched up there taking up space. It's a real problem and the potential to get worse as businesses have developed greater interest and access to get their gear into space. Bruno Carvalho, the director of D-Orbit, contends that the answer is better space logistics in order to support space sustainability. We need to clean up and uh, sustainable use of space is one of the things that triggered the orbit going into logistics. You have to manage the space around us. And by around us, I mean Earth, and we're now looking into cislunar space and beyond, and manage that to be sustainable for future generations. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Bruno explains how D-Orbit has created space taxis to move satellites into their final positions. He also describes how these taxis may have other useful applications after they are deployed in space. Bruno chats about D-Orbit's partnership with AWS, he also shares how D-Orbit has created the D-Orbit Academy to attract and develop new talent. Enjoy this episode. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a special guest, the first guest ever in the history of IT Visionaries that focuses on getting people or does anything in outer space, I believe. Bruno Caravaggio, director at D-Orbit. Bruno, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Okay. Right out the gate. When I go to the website, I'm not even going to pretend I understand exactly what you guys are talking about. Your website, D-Orbit, says D-Orbit is the leader in space logistics and orbital transportation services. I think I know what that means. But I'm not certain. Bruno, can you please explain what it is that D-Orbit does? Yes, of course. I'll try. Uh, I'll try my best. Uh, D-Orbit is a space logistics company, uh, as the as you find out on the website. And by space logistics, we mean putting infrastructure in space. Beyond the, the launcher, you need to get into a place in orbit. It's not just about delivering assets into space. It's about delivering capability into space. So... We take our customers, uh, we do the last, last mile delivery, which means, you know, after ride shares, we have a bunch of satellites together in the same launcher, we'll do the, um, the taxi service into the, uh, the right spot in the orbit that you, that you require. But we also do, uh, as I said, the delivery capability. And then we start to look ahead and think beyond that in terms of uh, other logistics challenges that space uh, enables. For someone like myself, who's not that versed in space travel at all, what do you mean the last mile of delivery? So most people know that there's a rocket. Mm -hmm. The rocket has a craft on it. The rocket blows up, or excuse me, ignites, shoots into space, and it detaches from whatever craft it is, whether it's a shuttle, a lunar landing thing, like it's, it's something else that's on the rocket. After it gets there, no one knows what else happens. <laughs> what happens next? So imagine that uh, that that rocket is the bus service, right? You you typically go from between two cities, either on a train or on a bus, but then you reach the train station or the bus station, and you still need to get home, right? You need to call a taxi or hop into something smaller that will transport you to the final destination. We are that providing that taxi service. So after the launcher, I mean, we launched with, uh, for instance, SpaceX, we were on our first transporter one. They beat the, the record of number of satellites uh, on a single launcher, 143 if my memory serves me right. 
And of those 143, they left into the, say, train station. So what happens next is that we, we are the taxi service that is going to deliver the ones that are inside our vehicle into their final orbital positions. So this is mind-boggling stuff right now. I think you, your description of using public transportation is 100% very clear. But then my brain starts thinking about like how much does that cost and how much do you charge for this? Because you have, whether it's manned or robot-operated craft in space to receive other craft that have now shot to space. Is that accurate? We are already in the vehicle. It's like uh, those trains where you put the car inside. Or like a ferry. A ferry is a boat, but it has cars inside. Exactly. So we are, we are the car inside and the passengers are inside us already. For our passengers, for our customers, it doesn't cost much more than, than flying solo on, on the rocket. It's a different proposition. So again, we're looking into uh, taking the, the, our passengers into or, or our customers, our, the assets of our customers to the places where they need to be. If you think about deploying a fleet or a, or a, or a constellation of satellites, then you think about uh, putting those into, into, spacing those into the right orbital planes and, and allowing the, the, the fleet and the constellation to enter into service much quicker. I would say for many people, it's hard to imagine things that they don't quite understand. So that's where I'm at today. This is a fascinating thing, what you just now described to me. Because when we go try to look up, for example, deorbits funding rounds or something like that. I mean, we can find that it was 17.7 million raised, but that's nothing compared, like software companies raise 30, 40 million. That's just to make code. What are you guys making? It's not just code, it's code, it's machines, it's all kinds of stuff, I'm assuming. How does it all meld together? In a sense, we are, we are building a satellite, like a vehicle, right? So we, we're building a spacecraft. And by spacecraft, we mean something that will orbit the earth. It's about the size, a bit bigger than a washing machine. You just put our passengers, which are, we are providing a service to smaller satellites. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the CubeSat um, thing. So it's basically uh, CubeSat uh, started with, uh, with um, university projects and, uh, and someone just uh, started to standardize uh, shapes of spacecraft. And they came up with a small sat form, uh, what they call CubeSat, which is a 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter satellite. That's called the one unit. And uh, typically what we do is that we, you, you put some of those together, you have three U's, six U's, 12 U's, and so on and so forth. But they're all kind of the same form factor. So very small things. You know, the, the box looks like, uh, you know, you um, could have a bottle inside, you know, the kind of a, a 30 centimeters by 10 by 10. These things normally are very capable in terms of what they are aimed for, in terms of observing the earth or communications or internet of things and so on and so forth but they don't have propulsion. They don't have means to get to their location. So that's, that's what we're providing. We're providing the service to put them into the right place. It's quicker than they would normally go. So how did you get involved with this, uh, this mission? Because uh, you know, we did a little homework on you via LinkedIn and such, and we see that you've been, in, you've been working in, is it fair to say some form of space for quite some time, like satellite da- databases, working at different companies? Yeah, I mean, personally, I've, I've been working in space for the last 16 years, probably, uh, different types of missions from science, uh, big science missions that cost in the billions to, uh, to uh, smaller things. I started working with the Orbit uh, 2018, probably, and um, I was still in the UK at the time. 
the challenge was they were going through the the, the last funding round, so they're going through uh, one of the investors, uh, Seraphin, is based in the UK. They're, they're setting setting up shop there and uh, starting to try to define a team, work the business case, uh, and and so forth. At the same time, uh, I was uh, moving my my family back to Portugal, where I'm currently based, where the orbit already has also a, a, an office. They came to Portugal on a, on a on the back of a, a challenge that was put together by MIT and in partnership with the, with the Portuguese government, where they won with a, another product that the Orbit has, that's the Orbiting Kit. And I was challenged to to take responsibility for the operation here. So basically, start looking at the what role would the Portuguese office provide in tandem with the, with the, what was being done or started in the UK, and then obviously all put together and all centralized in Italy where the, the company's uh, headquarters are located. It's been a journey. I mean, uh, for me personally, I, I'm passionate about space. So it's really cool to be doing things that uh, nobody else is doing. It's uh, thinking a bit out. I don't like the expression outside of the box, but uh, it's, it's thinking a bit outside of this world. Maybe it's, uh, it's a, di- a bit different. I never really even thought or considered that the objects in space couldn't get to where they actually needed to go. I just assumed that everything got sent up there with its own like, I thought that was the duty of NASA. Like, if you're sending up a satellite, you build a propulsion system to get it to where you're going. But you're saying that's not the case, that they leverage technologies like yours to then take the satellite, doesn't have its own propulsion. They don't build it. The orbit makes the machines, as well as the software on board, that then can program it and say, hey, this satellite needs to be over Antarctica, wherever it needs to be, right? And it moves it there. Do most people understand that? These machines are sent up without their own propulsion systems. I have no idea. <laughs> when you talk to people, once you're in a business for 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 a bit of time, you, you start losing a bit of uh, uh, what other people do not know about space. You start engaging in a different way. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think I think maybe it's not clear, and uh, and things are also going beyond what NASA does. And uh, we are a private company, and we work with private customers. I would argue that uh, our institutional market, even in Europe, it's it's relatively small. We are based in Europe, and most of our customers have been US-based or um, elsewhere. We're the first to do it in the sense that we are the first to actually, we have a, we're currently operating uh, three um, satellite deployers, as we call it, or space tugs, and we are planning to launch a, a few more next year. Um, already fully booked until April, I think, if my memory serves me right. And the thing is that we are thinking of beyond that. It's about, as I said, delivering capability. So after the mission is, you know, after the passengers leave the taxi, the taxi is still a car and that car can still provide services. So we are flying computers in space. We're providing, starting to have uh, edge computing capabilities so that you can uh, leverage the capability of, the, of an asset that's already there to do other cool things. So you start thinking about deploying applications and software, as you mentioned, instead of uh, hardware into space. And we can do that already. The bottleneck is typically, uh, from a space application perspective, the bottleneck is typically the ground communications, the antenna being available for when the spacecraft comes over and so on and so forth. Yeah, it gives a whole new perspective to like getting a, a software update, right? Because when we get software updates, we are always near, let's say, a Wi-Fi signal or we're always near a cell signal. And if you're updating your satellite and you need to get software there, then I need to call up the orbit to say, hey, I need to send this code. Because there is no over the airwave. I guess it's just satellite to satellite communications while my satellite orbits near you to then deliver this code. Yeah, there are several ways to do it. Typically, most satellites will have uh, uh, links to the ground and the capability to, to patch their software. Their software, control software, you know, attitude control and so on and so forth. 
what we're trying to do now is to provide mechanisms for you not to upload just to upload applications, you know, to upload algorithms to to provide. We can provide you data from either other satellites or from other instruments that are currently on board uh, for you to do your cool things. I mean, it's like having a you know a phone where where you have a, an app that you can develop because you can use a camera or or you can use the the sensors on your phone. If you provide a bunch of sensors in space and some instruments and some computer facilities, what would you do with it? That's a challenge. I mean, happy to. If you have ideas, share them. <laughs> Hopefully my our audience at IT Visionaries doesn't listen to this episode and think to themselves like, man, this host is an idiot. He does not understand anything because I'm learning from you as we talk. You, you hit at it just a second ago, but I wanted to further discuss. You mentioned before that most people think of when they think of space, they think of like maybe government, like I said, NASA, right? But you're saying, hey, that's not actually the case anymore. There's a lot of private organizations that have whatever they need to get to space. I saw and we read a little homework about AWS Ground Station, which is an Amazon, AWS, Amazon Web Services. There's a partnership there with the orbit. Uh, we saw some stuff with SpaceX. That seems to make sense. SpaceX obviously is trying to figure out space travel. Talk to me a little bit about what are some of the things that these private companies are trying to accomplish in space? Let's break that down in smaller pieces. Uh, the partnership with AWS is, there's two parts of this. Uh, one is the actual we're using their cloud infrastructure for our own software. So we have uh, um, our own control software. So we actually need to operate those satellites. And whilst in the, in the past, most of the companies and still most of the institutions that you mentioned uh, still you know, use kind of monolithic solutions uh, like uh, applications that will have their dedicated servers and so on and so forth because they need to be in a closed room with keys and access cards and everything. De deploying uh, our software to control our satellites uh, in, in AWS, so um, in a cloud infrastructure. So that allows us to uh, minimize our own investment in terms of the infrastructure that we, we require, but we also, you know, the, the pay as a service and so on and so pay as you go. That is really useful for a startup because we don't have to invest into a bunch of servers and maintain those that are, you know, in three years time obsolete and so on. So that minimizes the capex for us. The second part of that is that they deploy the what they call the ground stations, uh, Amazon ground stations. This is basically Amazon putting an antenna on every data center that they have and putting uh, partnerships with other antenna providers. That means that we can not only control our satellites through their network, but also have access to the data immediately on and on demand on the cloud. So they minimize the, the latency that for the data that's coming from not just our customers, but also ourselves to be readily available in, into, in a cloud infrastructure that will allow you to deploy algorithms, correlate with other data sets, and so on and so forth. That is giving to space, that, uh, which is always lagging behind in terms of uh, technology. It seems like a, a counterintuitive, but it's, it's true. I mean, we only fly technologies that are proven, so the computer needs to fail many times in, you know, on the ground, and we've, we've probably flying two or three iterations uh, backwards uh, so that it works. But we are approaching the same logic you know of silicon valley of the startup which is uh, fail and, and launch fail and launch and because the costs are coming down and people like spacex bringing the cost to orbit down significantly uh, that's much uh, you know still have to, to have the safeguard mechanisms because we don't want to just send debris into space and we want things to work we're bringing the same kind of um, architectures of software um, 
to map into space. Because the, the, the flip side of that, which is what we're deploying in space, is also the computing capabilities that are linked with that uh, cloud infrastructure. So we are deploying cloud infrastructure in space now. After the, the taxi service, there's still a very capable service module and a very capable spacecraft with some computing capabilities in space. So we're linking that two together and AWS is a bit of the glue there. So in your mind, what do you think this, this is going to unlock? You know, whenever we think of space, we always, most people immediately jump to the future, as in there's going to be future implications, the betterment of humanity, society, however you want to phrase it. What are some of the things you think are going to be unlocked by this new, this new capability of bringing the cloud to space? I mean, to be honest, I hope that uh, the people are not limited by my own imagination, because I think we don't know what the future holds. What we're trying to provide is the infrastructure and the capability for people to use. I mean, a bit like uh, uh, the spare capacity and computing power that Amazon had when they made it available for web services. They didn't know what people were going to deploy. So we don't know either. But we have some ideas. I mean, if you think about going beyond Earth orbit, you think about going you know, to the moon and to asteroids and to Mars, then you start looking into deploying capabilities in those local environments. You want to minimize lagging communication. You want to minimize or to maximize the bandwidth that you have available within that local infrastructure. So it's creating that capability into uh, that's required. In terms of applications, I'll give you a quick example that we are actually now testing. So imagine that you have a satellite that is typically downloading the, the data over a site that's about you know two days old. So revisiting time is two days. That's the orbit that's defined. Uh, typically weather satellites are like that. So if you download data from that satellite, you can potentially in space, download data from another satellite in space. You can potentially process that information in space and generate alerts uh, for you know, fire detection or something which are real-time immediate before the satellite passes over the, the next ground station for you to, to download and say, oh, there's a fire. But yeah, but the fire was two days ago. So it's a bit late to, to, to deploy the, um, the fire services. So alert generation is a good example of things to do in orbit, but you do other things. You do um, debris detection, so uh, for collision avoidance. And, and by collision avoidance, I really mean collision avoidance in space. Things are getting a bit crowded there. Um, so, yeah. That seems hard to imagine because, for example, I drive on the road. I see how many objects are currently on the road. When we're trying to figure out autonomous vehicles here, how many objects are in space right now? Thousands. Uh, I mean, we have launched since Sputnik uh, about 8,000 satellites. We plan, I mean, there's an estimation until the end of the decade is about 35,000, just best decade. I mean, you mentioned SpaceX, Starlink is already on 1,600 satellites or something like that. So, and you can see them. You, you, if you look up, you can see them. That is wild. I'd see, like, I haven't been keeping up on it that closely. I always knew companies were using satellite weather reading systems, data collection systems, the government was doing it, military was doing it, private industry was doing it, but 35,000 objects right now? And not, not yet. I mean, the, the more objects that, you, that are not operational that are, are, are probably the problematic ones. I mean, the ones that are operational that we, that we know where they are, it's, it's fine. But we already had collisions in space. I mean, uh, 2009, if my memory serves me right, you had the Iridium versus uh, Cosmos, which is a basically two big satellites colliding, which just generates debris. And if you think that uh, those objects are traveling at, I don't know, 25,000 kilometers per hour, um, <laughs> one speck of ink, and you Google this and you'll find it, one speck of ink will create some, some holes in the, in, into things like the ISS. 
they have warnings every every week. That makes total sense because if you shoot water at high enough pressure, it can be used to cut steel. Yeah, exactly. 27,000 kilometers an hour. So yeah, a droplet of ink is a problem out there. <laughs> That's. <laughs> I didn't even really think about it that way. Like, jeez. It's a lot of inertia and, 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 and some orbits are getting crowded. Uh, so the orbit, as I said, started with, uh, with a contest and, and the original business case was actually the orbiting kit, which was still produced and we, we, we still pretty much in our catalog which is basically a device that you put in your satellite before going up, which is basically the red button to, to say if you lost control of a satellite, if you even if it's unreachable, you press the red button and everything will deorbit itself and, and re-enter the atmosphere and vanish. Because we need to clean up and uh, sustainable use of space is, is one of the things that trigger the orbit going into logistics, which is, you know, you have to manage the space around us. Uh, and by around us, I mean, Earth and we're now looking into cis lunar space and beyond and manage that to be sustainable for future generations. It's it's a problem. It's not something that people think uh, too much about it, but it's a problem. Do you see, I guess, a place where you guys going to start engineering? Because you mentioned space logistics, moving objects. Do you see a place where you're going to go get these things and pull them back onto Earth or put them somewhere else? Yeah, that's that's already in, that's already in the being thought through. Yeah, that's exactly the plan. Do you bring it back to Earth or send it even further away? Depends on their position because there's a lot of energy that's required to do either thing. So if they're closer to the Earth, you bring them down. If they're farther away, you take them elsewhere. The same taxi that uh, will deliver stuff in space can be used to then pick up other garbage or other things. And there are several experiments. I mean, we're not the only company doing it, but several experiments uh, being thought through from harpoons to fishing nets to uh, robotic arms. It's an interesting problem. And it's a challenge because it's not a, it's an harsh environment. Uh, it's um, controlling, it's, it's, it's three-dimensional, three not necessarily with cooperative targets, approaching them, making sure that you don't collide. It's, uh, it's a challenge. Yeah. And these objects are also traveling at 20 plus thousand kilometers an hour, right? So you're going to try to harpoon something moving at 20, I believe you said 26,000 kilometers an hour. Yeah, 26, 27,000 kilometers per hour. Yeah. You're going to harpoon it, catch it, and pull it back just so you could bring it back. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully they, these things, when you, when you approach them, they, you synchronize that movement, right? So, relative velocity becomes a bit easier to manage, but you still need to get to that place. And the control part of that is the challenge. I get what you're saying. You have to time your rotation or whatever, your navigation, so that you're in the same, you're traveling at the same rate of speed. So at that point, it's going to feel like you're just shooting across the way, but you're both going at 26 or 27,000 kilometers an hour. But, but you still need to get there and close enough. And that's the, that's the real challenge. Yeah. Like a harpoon line is like, what? I don't even know how many feet you would do it, but like, let's say a thousand feet. Like, yeah. Yeah. You have to be close. You have, you have to be relatively close in the grand scheme of things. It's close. Yeah. Yeah. What, what I, so I got to ask, cause this has been a, a topic of, conversation for many of our guests that have been on TV visionaries, which is what skills and knowledge is Deorbit looking for? Because every company's trying to get that next wave of talent. This is so foreign to me. I don't quite understand, but like what, what type of people are you guys looking for to work there? A lot of software actually. Uh, and we don't care really about the background. We have, uh, as I said, we're deploying web software like AWS based cloud software. So, and actually yeah actively recruiting. We have about 30 positions open on, on several uh, sites. And we grew, we grew from about 60 to 160 in the last nine months, even during COVID, which is uh, quite interesting. But yeah, software, 
it's uh, as important as every every other industry. The key challenge is uh, engineering on on like in space engineering. So some different electronics. I mean, we have to care about the electronics, which is uh, care about the environment where you operate in those electronics. So harsh environments, and then there's the flight dynamics, which is physics. Everyone's talking about how there's not enough engineers, not enough STEM students or workers. We're trying something actually. I mean, we're all very active into try to um, promote these things in the outreach programs. Uh, I mean, I hope that uh, being here talking to you actually enables that as well. We're doing something that uh, we hope that um, it's going to ease the, the, the access and, and make, making uh, uh, these things available for or people don't, don't be you know, scared or frightened about the, the challenge, which is um, uh, what we call the, the Orbit Academy. And we're trying to uh, reach out to uh, undergraduates and even below, but also to you know, there are things that for, for the talks and things that you, you don't have to be a master's or a PhD or anything, but you need to have the right skill set and the right attitude and the right mindset, I, I suppose. Uh, so we're training. We do a lot of in, in-house training. So you graduates or, or recently gra- uh, graduate work a lot of universities, so pitching ideas so that they can do their thesis or challenging their, their students. Um, and we try. We try our best to, to widen the pool of resources that pool of people that we can uh, that we can reach and uh you know working remotely these days uh, we hope that makes it uh, a bit easier you were based in lisbon portugal is that right yeah correct what made dorbit select that location as a place to you know send you to build an office is there a unique community there that is uh, or a lot of access to universities that are studying this these subjects portugal is uh, well first is a great weather and great location and it's peaceful and everything else, but uh, more importantly, it's access to, um, to brain power. So we do have very close relationships with the three or four universities here. Uh, and as I said, it really to challenge students and to challenge the, the teachers themselves. And um, it's working really well. I mean, uh, it's um, the orbit and the founders came here almost by accident, as I said, on the back of a, of a business contest. It's a, it was a prize, right? They, that they won. So they got some funding to, to kickstart things here. But they stayed and, they, and they, they've been in Portugal for, I don't know, seven years now, precisely because there's their access to the market. The other thing in Europe, and this is also one of the reasons why uh, the orbit is expanding into other locations and UK and looking at the US as well for obvious reasons, but uh, other locations, is not just to enlarge the market, but to, to, and to enlarge, enlarge the pool of uh, potential the, uh, people that we can, we can recruit, but it's also to play with the... Uh, it's something that in space always exists, even if it's a commercial venture, which is the geopolitics of the, the whole thing. With the UK, with Brexit and the European Union, Portugal tends to be uh, neutral in, in, some, in some, some of those aspects. I will piggyback off that for those of you that are out there and not familiar with this. Portugal is one of the stops on the World Surf League Tour. Oh, absolutely. Super tubos. So if you love surfing <laughs> and, you, <laughs> and you like going to space... And you're qualified. And the big waves in Nazare. <laughs> Nazare, yeah, there you go. Exactly. 100-foot waves. So if you want to see some epic natural conditions, and you're also, I mean, I don't even know what subjects you need, but like astrophysicist or something, <laughs> you want to work with Bruno, give, give him a shout. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bruno, it was awesome having you on the show today, sharing some of the ideas. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Bruno, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so that our audience can get to know you a little better. Sure. 
All right. Some of our questions will still be about space, though, possibly, because it's a fascinating <laughs> it's subject. All right. What movie or book did you read or see that got you into science fiction in outer space? Oh, plenty. I mean, I can name you all the authors from Hainlein to uh, Clark. No, what was the first one? What was the first one that got you fired up? Yeah, my best, I think, is uh, the, the Moon is the Harsh Mistress by Heinlein. And if it got about movies, probably Blade Runner. Blade Runner. What about Blade Runner particularly pulled you in? It's not just the theme. Obviously, the theme is very profound, but it's it's the almost dystopian kind of still hopeful world. It's it's uh, it's really out there. When I saw it, I was, I don't know, I was 10, 11, so it's a while ago. It's it's really cool. When you were younger, did you envision, did you think you were going to be an astronaut or did you think you were going to be something else? I applied to the Air Force for uh, jet piloting, but I couldn't, I couldn't because of glasses and everything. I will always wear these. But uh, I mean, astronauts, uh, people want to, uh, I, as I said, I do those outreach things and the people say, I ask the kids, what do you want to be? And they say, astronaut. Yeah, but astronaut to do what? And you still have to have another profession to, before you become an astronaut. You need to be, you know, a doctor, a scientist, a pilot, whatever. So what's the basis that what's motivating you before going into space needs? It's, it's really important. On your LinkedIn bio, you have something interesting. You say, because space is hard and needed and fun, besides space, what else is fun to you? I paraglide. Paraglide? Yeah. Like the self-propelled, the ones like the little machines, like the fan thing? like No engine. No, it's just, just soaring. Yeah, just soaring like a bird and uh, and going on thermals. And, and But I, I've been paragliding for about 20 years now. And uh, I, do, I do tandem flights. So you're more than welcome to come over and also try that. I do fly with my kids. I used to play the saxophone. I'm not sure if I can pick it up and do it again. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, Portugal is known also for its vibrant food culture. Most people who have been there have only great things to say about that. Let me ask you a question. What is your favorite Portuguese dish? Oh, uh, bacalhau alagareiro. That's a uh, tough one. So imagine the, the, salt, the salted codfish just with... Garlic and olive oil and some nice potatoes, but yeah, I mean it can it can go on forever. <laughs> See, it's it's very 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 hard to to choose one. How did you pronounce that again? So bacalhau, which is the salted cod, the dry salted cod, alagareiro, which is basically means the the the, the, the lagar is the the place where you produce the olive oil. So the, the when you crush the olives, and uh, I'm hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> Only met a handful of people that have been there, but every person that I've ever met that's either A, from there, or B, visited there, has said the food culture is amazing, that you will eat something unique and exotic pretty much every meal. We do go for, for, for some crazy food, I suppose, in terms of uh, the particular food, even in European standards, I suppose. It's a kind of a Mediterranean type thing, right? So a lot of olive oil, a lot of uh, garlic, a lot of seasoning, a lot of salt probably as well. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, we, we, we do try a few things to, to keep it simple. So if, if, if fish, for instance, is the simplest way possible, it's just on the grill with a bit of salt and that's it. Well, listen, if IT Visionaries ever comes out to Portugal. Give me a shout. Yeah, I want a tour. Uh, we'll be out there. Me and Aaron will be out there surfing, enjoying Lisbon, hopefully catch a meal. We would love to come to your office, but I don't know if we would understand what we saw. No, it's It's fine. <laughs> You'll see computers anyway. You won't see anything different than the software house. You mentioned we have the world, one of the world surf reserves. So it's about 20 miles away from where I live. So I'll, I'll definitely take you there. <laughs> Perfection. Bruno, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. 